Um, many years ago, after I had preached in a Sunday morning service, an older woman in the congregation approached me with a big smile on her face. I had high hopes um, about what she was about to say. She was sort of a grandmother for a lot of us, uh, always full of encouragement, lots of hugs, lots of laughs. Uh, in her innocent and loving way, she looked at me and she said, Jason, you're going to be a good preacher one day. <laughs> Not that day, but uh, one day. In that same church around the same time, I preached a Sunday evening service and a gentleman came up to me afterwards and he said, Jason, I'm going to buy the tape of that sermon. <laughs> now, the tape ministry that we had in the lobby was very active but not for my sermons. So this was pretty encouraging. I was excited and I said, oh, that's great to hear, Rod. Thanks for saying that. He said, yep, that sermon put my kids right to sleep. I'm gonna <laughs> buy that tape and play it every night so they will uh, go to sleep quickly. What a weird and strange profession preaching is, isn't it? To make your living trying to captivate the attention and the hearts of the same people over and over again on a weekly basis, only to find out that what you're saying doesn't amount to much, or that people never recall much of anything that you say. Now, you shouldn't feel bad about that. On more than one occasion, people have said to me, when you said such and such in that sermon about this and that, and I think to myself, I have absolutely no memory of ever saying that before. Are you sure that was me? It's tough communicating the Word of God. When we served the church in Scotland, some colleagues and I would run many conferences for Scottish ministers from around the country, and every time we would hold these for them, they would talk about the tyranny of Monday morning. Tyranny. I mean, that's a big word. To be tyrannical is to be cruel. Not merely cruel, but cruel in an arbitrary, excessive manner. It's cruelty for cruelty's sake. That's kind of the weight that the preacher feels about coming up with yet another sermon in a matter of just a few days. What a strange and unsettling profession. St. Paul has a word for it. Foolishness. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, and folly to Gentiles. A scandalon, Paul says. We modern Christians tend to overlook that word, the stumbling block, the scandalous nature of the cross, and we reimagine it through phrases like Jesus died on the cross to show us how much he loves us. Well, undoubtedly he did. But it misses the force of St. Paul's message here to the Corinthians. Someone has so much love for another that they would die for him. Now, come on, that's not terribly scandalous, is it? We see this very theme in the movies all the time. Saving Private Ryan is based on the idea that soldiers, even those with little love in their hearts, will readily lay down their lives for other soldiers and for their country. 
And we don't watch those films and then walk, our head, or walk away shaking our heads, thinking how scandalous that is. But Paul says the preaching of the word of the cross is a foolish scandal. It's more than merely unusual. It's more along the lines that if I preach this word of the cross, you should cancel me. How dare I? How dare someone like me subject you poor folk to that kind of nonsense? How dare we infect impressionable children with silly ideas like this? Like an ancient male Jew was executed outside the city on a trash heap by a Roman governor and somehow that is a good thing? How dare we? It's more that kind of scandal. Why is the cross of Jesus not just any old cross, mind you, because thousands were executed on a cross, including some of Jesus' own disciples, but why is the cross of Jesus of Nazareth so scandalous to Jews and to Greeks? For one, there was no more obscene way for your life to end. Romans would torture their victims to the point of death, but still with enough life within them so that when they were hung up on that cross, splayed naked for all to see, that they would feel something as bad or worse than physical pain. They would feel shame, isolation, complete abandonment by everyone else while they helplessly continue to exist in their own personal hell. Jesus died that way. The same Jesus who claimed to be the Son of God the Messiah, the Savior of the world, who was sent by the same God who parted the Red Sea, who brought down the walls of Jericho. This man, Jesus, claimed to exist before Abraham, even though he was in his mid-thirties when he made that claim. And three of his followers swear he had high tea with Moses and Elijah on a mountain long after Moses and Elijah had been dead. This man, this man Jesus, says he can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, all by himself, and one day, he boldly asserts, he'll come back to earth and judge the world. Someone like that, if any of that is true, doesn't die on something like a cross. Now, a cross doesn't stir up the unsettled feeling in us that it did in the ancient Near East. We gaze at this big, shiny cross behind me, and we're amazed at its beauty, aren't we? We're even drawn toward it. We're drawn toward the front. But imagine it's a hangman's noose there instead of a cross, or an electric chair. We know the sort of people who go to the electric chair, right? 
Imagine the average Portlander walking into this room and seeing a gigantic electric chair hanging on the wall. Wouldn't you find that scandalous and offensive? They worship a person executed in one of those? Yeah, I don't think so. And yet, crazy Paul of Tarsus has the gall to claim that the cross, the cross of Jesus of Nazareth and no other cross brings life for me, for you, for every human being that has or ever will walk this earth. It's that powerful. That cross, that one, saves the world. Now that might sound scandalous enough, but Paul is saying even more than that in this text. He's saying that it's the word of the cross, the preaching of the cross, that's our salvation. Now this, it seems to me, is just about the most scandalous aspect of the cross of Christ. Paul is saying that God's saving power in Christ for the world comes to us in the preaching, the foolish preaching of the cross. Somehow, God bridges the divide of time and space between what happened 2,000 years ago and January 29, 2023, by means of words. Words. Words about a particular point in time crucifixion, words from an ordinary person like me, like others who are here. Somehow, God saves the word through the world through that word, that word of the cross, that cruciform, cross-shaped word. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? It's particularly upsetting, given the sorts of sermons I've preached and the ones we've all heard, right? And yet, and yet we keep preaching and we keep showing up in here to hear it again and again, weak and frail as they are. Somehow the preached word of God has power. It has power to accomplish God's purposes in the world, God's purposes for you. I'm not alone in this assessment. This is not an idea unique to me. One of the documents of the faith, we call them confessions, that emerged from the 16th century Protestant Reformation was one called the Second Helvetic Confession. And here's what it says in plain language. Quote, the preaching of the Word of God is the Word of God. Unquote. They were reiterating 1 Corinthians 1, that the power of the cross and the word of the cross are united together to accomplish our, our salvation. 
And I think St. Paul would agree with those words out of that confession, cross-shaped words from a bunch of nobodies. We'll save the world. How can words be so powerful? Just words. Paul seems to think that these words hold such power because the cross was more than an example of God's love for us, even though it is that. Rather, at the cross, something cosmic was happening. The world order was being turned upside down, and God was disrupting, even shattering, everything we value as wise and noble. Let me put it this way. The event of the cross 2,000 years ago was so powerful and such an intrusion into the normal order of things that now the word of the cross is an agent itself, not simply information about an event. But word of the cross is united with the event in order to perpetuate the power and the impact of what happened on Calvary 2,000 years ago. This is not an ordinary kind of thing. It's not an ordinary word. It's not a political speech. This is a word that is powerfully connected to the central event in history. And God, by His Spirit, takes up the power of the cross and unites them with cross-shaped preaching and continues that work of turning the world upside down, of opening the tombs, of giving eternal life, of making 12 average fishermen who couldn't find their way in life to change the world. Because of the cross, the word of the cross becomes an agent for transformation. And what does this word do? Well, Paul says it's making somebodies out of nobodies. And turning somebodies into nobodies. Now, how scandalous is that? Paul is reveling in the fact that his Corinthian readers were not educated philosophers or born into blue-blooded families. He was thrilled that most of them had no power according to society's standards and expectations. And he believed, scandalously, that these nobodies were now in a position to shame the Pilots and the Herods of the world, simply because, all because, they heard and believed his foolish preaching about a cross. This is not the normal order of things, right? I mean, we don't give our top engineering jobs to those who barely finish middle school, do we? We don't elect leaders who can't articulate clear re Well, wait a minute. <laughs> that may not be true. Should we think that? Better. We don't appoint people to the boards of our organizations and nonprofits who have made a hash of their lives. 
That's not the way the world works. We strive to put a string of letters beside our name so we can get the highest paying jobs, so we can establish generational wealth, so we can live comfortably, so we can be somebody and avoid being a nobody. That's the way the world works. But the scandal of the cross is that God doesn't much care for our wisdom and power. Because on that cross, he strips all of that bare and lets it bleed out and die. I mean, what put Jesus on the cross? Who put Jesus on the cross? Pilate? Herod? The educated Jewish clergy? You did. I did. All the wisdom and power the world could muster crucified the Son of God. While I was studying in Scotland, I attended a very prestigious lecture series called the Gifford Lectures. If you are invited to deliver the Gifford Lectures, that's the signal you have made it. I was not invited to give, I was invited to attend. And this particular year I was attending, the speaker was a very proud Princetonian who was unusually pleased that he had made it to this point academic career. The lectures were held in this grand library. It's a beautiful place. Um, and I was sitting there. Uh, the, one of the lectures had begun. And a few minutes after that, a homeless gentleman from my neighborhood walked in and sat right in front of me. As you might imagine, his clothes were tattered. And for him, the stench was almost unbearable. And as you also might imagine, I did not have pleasant thoughts. I had the same sorts of thoughts that you are having right now about his presence in that room. What in the world is this guy doing in here? How did he get in here? He has no idea what he is about to hear. So I concentrated on the lecture, trying to discern what the speaker was trying to say, because I didn't understand much of it. And while I did that, this guy began visibly responding to the lecture, interacting with it, talking about it with his neighbor. He would lean over and add thoughts to what the guy had just said. At one point, he sort of chuckled and said, huh, I don't know. That's not true. <laughs> and it became obvious he knew a whole lot more about what that guy was saying than I did. Nobody's into somebody's, right? I had a little rebuke that day. I had a big rebuke that day. Here I was, striving to become a somebody by getting more letters by my name and climbing the power structures of this world, which is a surefire way to become a nobody. And God tapped me on the shoulder a little bit. And in moments like this, when it occurs to us that we're nobodies 
in need of much more than upward mobility and standing in the world. Well, then that's when this word of the cross gets particularly real and strong. That's when it can transform us into something new. When you can no longer depend on your own success or your bank account or your vast amounts of learning, then, then you're free to embrace the foolishness of the cross, which of course is the wisdom of God himself. I've long believed that one of the reasons God had such a, has such a hard time appealing to our modern world is because we have plenty of time and opportunity to engage in all sorts of other pursuits. We're not yet at the end of ourselves. Even when we hit a few bumps in the road, there are still almost limitless avenues to pursue before we get to God. But when we have nowhere else to turn, and everything we've relied on to this point isn't helping, well, we show up at church and we listen to a preacher talk about an ancient instrument of death. And then God arrives. It's in those moments that God tends to show up and do something we couldn't do for ourselves. What is it you're leaning on? See, the real scandal is the one that believes, is the person that believes that professional titles and insurance policies and being accepted in a social group at school, that those are sufficient for life. Leaning on that denies the true power of God in the cross of Jesus. And it turns out that believing in and following a Messiah who is known by a cross is the only thing that makes any sense in life. What is it you're leaning on? God has a way of tugging at those things, doesn't he? Sort of pulling them away from you in order to get our attention. Perhaps that friendship that person whose friendship you craved turned out to be no friend at all. Perhaps that financial stability meant more to you than you thought it did, and now you feel exposed and very vulnerable. Perhaps it was that diagnosis. It's a strange feeling to realize we don't have control over our own bodies, isn't it? And that diagnosis can be heavy, God can use that to tug at us. Could such moments be a word from the cross for us? Is Jesus trying to say, hey, you think you're stable, you think you've got it together, that you're somebody? Yeah, I have a word for you. I have a foolish sounding word for you. But if you listen to it, you will become wise. Thanks be to God.